Yeah, I think it's really this reframing of um, our approach to Alzheimer's disease being a matter of collective investment, thinking about in terms of what we can do for one another, help our brains, as opposed to what can I do for myself. And, you know, that requires us to think about our American dementia, all the things that are deranged and disordered and out of whack in our society. How can we start to make some progress to work back towards a more healthy, inclusively prosperous culture? Hi there. This is Michael C. Patterson, CEO of MindRamp Coaching and Consulting. At MindRamp, we're passionate about redefining human longevity. This is part one of a wonderful conversation I had with Daniel R. George, who, along with Peter Whitehouse, is the author of a new book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. Peter and Danny also collaborated on an earlier book called The Myth of Alzheimer's, What You Aren't Being Told About Today's Most Dreaded Diagnosis. Both books have been very influential in my thinking about brain health and dementia. Danny George is an Associate Professor of Humanities and Public Health Sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. He earned his Ph.D. and his Master's of Science in Medical Anthropology from Oxford University in 2010. He has over 130 professional peer-reviewed publications, and his research on intergenerational issues in dementia care has been recognized by the global advocacy group Alzheimer's Disease International. Now, in this podcast, part one of the interview, we will focus on the problems of our approach to brain health and dementia. Then in part two, we'll focus more on potential solutions. How do we overcome America's demented way of dealing with dementia? And by the way, if you haven't already listened to them, I invite you to check out the two podcasts that I did with Peter Whitehouse, Danny's co-author on both of these books. So, Danny George, you are the uh, co-author with Peter Whitehouse of a new book, American Dementia, and the previous book, uh, The Myth of Alzheimer's, which, as I said to Peter and and when I talked with him, both of them very influential to me in terms of shaking up my thinking about the the way things work. So I am very grateful to to both you and Peter. Um, Peter was saying that The Myth of Alzheimer's was more... I mean, it was both of your books, but he was kind of the driving force, whereas in this new book, American Dementia, you were the kind of driving force. So how did the idea come about? Where did you where did you feel the need to, to write this book? Yeah, it's a great place to start. And thank you for having me on the show. And um, uh, it's been great getting to know a little bit more about your podcast and the focus of your work as well. And there are def- definitely some overlaps there, which I, I'm, I'm excited to explore. But um, yeah, so The Myth of Alzheimer's came out in 2008, and um, it was Peter's baby. I think it's a book that he had been thinking about for a long time. Some some of his frustrations with the field, the way that we conceptualize our understanding of Alzheimer's, very much about the social construction of the disease and the problems that that, that posed for drug development, for the care of the elderly, for the dehumanization of people living with dementia. Um, and so I, you know, I was able to help him with that, bring that vision into fruition. But yeah, the, our, our latest book, American Dementia, definitely emerged um, from my, um, I think, in 2016, the, in the observation that simultaneously won uh, this drug called solanuzumab, which was another anti-amyloid drug that had been highly touted. Um, it failed in its phase three trial. 
And yet that same month, it was November of 2016, we got a study published in JAMA showing that dementia rates were actually declining in the United States over the last decade. And so that, that creates a paradox, right? Where yet another drug has failed and yet dementia rates appear to be declining. Well, there's clearly not a biological, you know, single mechanism drug that's doing that. So there's got to be other things in the culture that have precipitated those changes in dementia rates. And so that just got me thinking, um, you know, whereas our first book was more about social construction of Alzheimer's, this book, the lens that we're using is mainly political economy. What, what is it about the way our culture has been structured over the last 50 or so years that has contributed to brain health? And unfortunately, how are those contributions changing more recently in this era of, um, you know, what? We might call, and I know we'll talk about this more later, but uh, neoliberalism or hypercapitalism. What were the political and economic conditions that actually helped us for a while to reduce the incidence of dementia? Yeah, so we sort of have to go back to the trauma of the Great Depression and the World Wars, and that forged a new social contract between citizens and the state in the country. And so we we had. Um, you know, obviously the New Deal, uh, but we also had things like the GI Bill, which um, afforded higher education to tens of millions more Americans coming back from the World War. We had national health systems put in place in, in many Western countries because this fall in dementia rates isn't just being seen in the United States. It's also in Canada and four other Western European countries. And so those countries all established nationalized health systems, which better help manage vascular disease, keep cholesterol under control for people, manage diabetes. The things that we know contribute to brain illness, brain um, decline have been managed better by better health systems, which emerged in that mid 20th century era. Uh, we had really successful public health campaigns, for instance, um, smoking cessation rates, in the 1960s in the U.S., uh, something like 44% of the country smoked, and now that's down to about 14%. Again, what's good for the heart is good for the head. That seems to be contributing. And then we also deleted gasoline as part of the Clean Air Act in the 1970s. And blood lead levels have dropped about 80% just from the 70s to the 90s. And lead, of course, is a major neurotoxin. It also puts people at high risk for high blood pressure, for heart attacks, so in sum, the things that we were able to do as part of this new social contract in the mid 20th century, uh, this sort of era of managerial capitalism or Keynesianism, as some people call it, created the material circumstances in the culture that were more favorable to healthy brain aging for people who are now in their graying years. And those are the folks who are now showing this decline in uh, relative risk of dementia. And that risk has been going down since the 1980s uh, by about 13% per decade for dementia and 16% per decade for Alzheimer's disease specifically. So really the way we structured our political economy, what we guaranteed to citizens as rights of citizenship, all of those things imprinted themselves on the aging bodies and brains of, of Americans and people in these other Western countries where we're seeing the decline. We should be, get a little bit more specific about the numbers just so that we don't cause confusion. The, the, the overall numbers of Alzheimer may be going up, but that's because there are more older people. You're talking about the percentage of the, the population that get Alzheimer's is actually decreasing. Have I said that right? That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, we, okay. we have a, an aging culture. It's a mark of success that we have so many people who are aging uh, and uh, you know, at risk for dementia. That's, that is itself a marker of, of progress. But yeah, the relative risk within those aging cohorts is actually falling uh, for yeah. people who are aging. That's right. Yeah. Your book is titled American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. And there are multiple meanings of American dementia. You are beginning to define dementia. And part of that is it 
the amnestic part, the loss of memory. And what you're arguing is that we figured out how to lower the incidence of dementia. And now as a society, we've forgotten that. It's as though we didn't learn anything from those lessons and we've developed a new way of dealing with things, which is actually making things worse again. Mm-hmm. How are we making it worse? What happened after the uh, the New Deal and, and all of this stuff that, that changed the political and economic climate and, and started making things worse? Yeah, so um, I mentioned the trauma of the Great Depression and the World Wars. And in, in the 70s, we had a similar trauma I didn't live through it. Folks older than me will, will remember the oil shocks and stagflation of that decade. Right. Um, and so there was a sort of new um, regime put in place from a political economic perspective, which, again, people call it neoliberalism, which is a bit of a clunky word, you mm-hmm. call it market fundamentalism. The basis of it was basically to uh, stimulate the economy by liberating markets. And in in so doing, an attempt was made to sort of undo a lot of the social programs, uh, infrastructure that emerged in the mid 20th century and uh, turn formerly public goods like higher education being free, for instance, into market commodities uh, underwritten by Wall Street. And it was an era that some some people call financialization of the economy. Uh, as well, just uh, uh, everything being uh, underwritten by banks and and banks uh, giving out loans and, um, you know, uh, just a different way of approaching the social contract, individuals as consumers, individuals as commodities within markets. And that's the new era that that uh, that was ushered in in the 70s. And unfortunately, that has started to reverse some of the gains that we saw in the mid 20th century. So I mentioned improvements in vascular health, for instance, as a result of health systems and public health campaigns getting led out of gasoline. Uh, but what we're now seeing a reversal in that. So six in 10 Americans, according to the CDC, live with at least one chronic disease. So the gains that we saw for heart health, for vascular health in the 20th century have been reversed in the last few decades. You know, we have 80 million on or underinsured folks in this country now. Those are all people who aren't getting sufficient care for vascular diseases or other risk factors for dementia. We have falling lifespans now in this country. For the last five years, lifespans have fallen. Uh, That's unprecedented in in the Western world where lifespans tend to rise over time. Um, And then, you know, whereas we got gasoline out of lead to the benefit of our brains and hearts and vascular systems, we now have a crisis of uh, lead in our water systems. And uh, we have a chapter in the book on Flint if you look at water, lead levels in water in municipalities around the country, uh, like Cleveland, where I'm from and where Peter lives, uh, the lead is actually higher than in Flint. Yeah, that was part of the, that was surprising to me. I mean, we, we focus on Flint as being sort of a, a catastrophe in terms of lead, but, but you're arguing that, that it's pretty pervasive across the country. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's it's wow. really it's like a slow motion tragedy. Now, Flint is a really interesting story in this uh, in terms of neoliberalism, um, because um, you think about what Flint was in the mid 20th century. Right. It was a company town. There were tens of thousands of manufacturing jobs there. But in the 70s, you have this uh, shift to neoliberalism, uh, shift to sort of global markets, global free trade. These companies realize that they can outsource jobs to sidestep unions and pay less wages to workers. And so you have just a gutting of the manufacturing base in a place like Flint. And they go into these periods of really deep financial struggle. And then um, in the 2010s, 
you have uh, governments making decisions to, to change where the water is coming from because it'll save $2 million. You know, we've had to tighten right. purse strings to such a point where they're just cutting everywhere they can, including the drinking water. And the water from the, or from the Flint River was more corrosive than Lake Huron's water and it led to the lead leaching from the pipes and into people's water. So mm. it's directly tied to the way that we have restructured society over the last 50 years. So in other parts of the country, is it because the, there is lead pipes that are pumping our waters and we just haven't invested in infrastructure change to get rid of it? Is that basically the problem? Yeah, I think that's right. It's old and aging infrastructure. It's uh, the pipes, it's the soldering on the pipes. Um, I think lead was still able to be in the soldering of pipes until like 2014 or something like that. Wow. Yeah, deregulation is a, is a major part of this story as well, which we can talk about more about later. But yeah, it's it's and it's not just lead in, in water as well. There's lead paint in people's homes. Lead right. was still able to be an industrial chemical uh, additive, you know, until quite recently as well. So there's many different sources, even though we've managed to get lead out of gasoline and out of soil to a large extent, there is still mm. lead in other facets of our lives. You are listening to the MindRamp Podcast. I'm Michael Patterson, and I'm talking with Daniel R. George, co-author of American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. Talk a little bit about the mechanism of why lead is bad and how it leads to dementia, because I think there sometimes we think of dementia and Alzheimer's as like a disease, like you got infected with dementia. My understanding, it's more, it's just damage to brain cells that accumulates from a whole different variety of, of sources over the course of our life, which gets aggravated as we get older. If that's correct, then take us through that route of how lead contributes to that deterioration of brain cells. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And it reminds me of a concept that we talk about in the book, which people should know, which is cognitive reserve is this somewhat nebulous, mysterious effect that has been observed where people who have more years of formal education, uh, people who keep their minds more active, appear to have a buffering effect against age-related neuropathologies, right? So you can have plaques and tangles and other hallmarks of brain aging, but still function at a fairly high level. Maybe because learning uh, generates new neurons and synapses. It may be because the brain functionally uh, restructures itself to have more neural pathways to work around the damaged areas. But what, what lead poisoning does, especially in youth, is for adolescent brains that are maturing, is you're, you're absolutely right, Michael. It, it kills neurons, it kills synapses, synapses and it uh, effectively causes oxidative stress throughout the body. It mimics neurotransmitter functioning, so you get asymmetrical functioning of, of the brain and behavior issues, learning impairments. Um, but yeah, it ultimately, to go back to the initial concept, it weakens one's cognitive reserve and makes the threshold at which somebody will convert to dementia, you know, with their aging brain shorter. And so that buffering effect is, is mitigated against by exposure to lead over time. It, it struck me as you were talking that affluence, people who are more affluent, have more money, have more resources to maybe get cleaner water, are likely to have improved cognitive reserve. And it points out, I think, a point of your book that was that was pretty dramatic for me, that we have to look at the socioeconomic situation of an individual in order to understand their, their exposure to dementia or their vulnerability to dementia. 
you can have exactly the same thing, but a, a person who's less affluent who has to drink polluted water or hasn't, hasn't got any options or is exposed to polluted air is going to have more damage and have less cognitive reserve. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And, you know, they've done some really good studies recently looking at how your zip code predicts your brain health. Uh, there was a study in JAMA either last year or the year before that associated sort of neighborhood level disadvantage with Alzheimer's disease neuropathology um, and also things like uh, lower brain volume for people who live in more disadvantaged areas or more deterioration in the hippocampal region, which is sort of instrumental to memory. So, yes, you're, you're so right. And we have a chapter in the book um, on the Fight for 15 movement about sort of workers who are advocating within the fast food industry for a $15 minimum wage. Oh, right. Um, but we use that as a lens to look at all the ways in which poverty or being working poor engineers poor brain health for, for a lot of what the reasons you're saying. You know, you can't eat um, a Mediterranean and low sodium diet that we know are protective for brain health. Right. Uh, you can't uh, exercise for an hour a day if you have multiple jobs you have to work or an unsafe neighborhood. If you have exposures to not just lead in the drinking water or paints peeling from the walls, but um, air pollution tends to cluster in urban environments. And that's a, an area that's being studied more and more the particulates from, from pollution appear to be able to infiltrate the blood-brain barrier and cause inflammation and vascular um, damage there as well. So, yeah, for, for a whole host of issues, and it, I like your framing of it, it's good to talk about social determinants of brain health mm. because that enlarges the story. And I know that's what your podcast aims to do to a large extent. But what, what are the well, attributes of the culture that are impacting aging brains? Actually, your book, American Dementia, was like a slap upside the head for me because MindRamp has basically focused on individual behavior change and lifestyle modification. I don't think we've ignored environmental, but your book really, you know, kind of said it's not enough. Taking personal responsibility for our own brain health can only take us so far because of the, what we've just been saying. So that was a nice course correction for me. Is there anything I should have asked you? Anything that I, you want to make sure we, we talk about? Oh, we, we covered such interesting ground here. I guess the, the one thing that didn't come up, which maybe came up with Peter, is um, this drug aducanumab that has been in the news. And that to me- Aduhelm in-, in That's the trade, yeah, the market the name. Um, and so that to me represents where we don't want to go, right? right. That is industry, market-driven, individualized approaches to brain health with a huge price tag attached to it, right? Biogen took this drug that didn't work really or doesn't appear to work and had a really problematic safety profile for the people in the high dosage group had brain bleeds or brain swelling. And they set the price, as soon as they got FDA approval, they set the price at um, over $50,000 a year, which they now, they've dropped that in half uh, because of public outcry. But mm. it just shows you the charade here and uh, the way markets warp and distort our values, our attempts to problem solve for complex challenges that we have. So I would urge people to, um, you know, to, to investigate Aduhelm uh, as a case study and where we don't want to go um, in solving our American dementia. Why does the FDA and the Alzheimer's Association, why do they support a drug that doesn't work? One of the things they say is because people need hope, mm -hmm. but that seems ridiculous. Why try to give people hope with a hopeless drug? Yeah. And, and the other thing seems to be it's 
profit driven and career driven. And it's like people are making careers around drug development. And I don't know, what is your thought about why big, huge organizations continue to promote something that doesn't work? Yeah, really, really well said. I, I think uh, follow the money is, is a good motto in, in that respect. I mean, the Alzheimer's Association, for instance, since 2018 has received $1.4 million from Biogen and, and Esai, their current company. Mm. But even beyond that, they've been promising people a drug for decades. That's been their main fundraising cudgel. And when you promise people over and over again, you know, that, that the panacea is coming down the pipeline, you sort of have to deliver that at some point, right? And so whether the drug works or not, like they had to fight for this as the hypothetical cure, yeah. uh, which is so warped. And now the, the FDA is its own separate issue. We can do a whole episode on, on the <laughs> FDA. Um, but there's, by my count, at least five federal investigations ongoing right now to explore the connections between the FDA and Biogen. And there were some inappropriate, alleged inappropriate communications and uh, collaborations between the two prior to aducanumab getting approved. There's a revolving door with industry and uh, and the regulatory agencies. There's also the, the regulatory capture, the fact the FDA gets like 75% of its drug approval budget is from industry itself, from user fees. So it's sort of Fox running the hen house type of yeah. issue as well. And again, it's all part of neoliberalism, right? It's uh, that, that act was passed in the 1990s, um, in the early 90s, that allowed uh, industry to basically fund the FDA's activities, as opposed to the FDA being a freestanding public health regulatory agency that we fund through our taxation, you know, redistributive taxation. This is a, a different model where industry is enmeshed in, in our regulatory bodies, uh, American dementia. American dementia indeed. Daniel R. George persuasively argues that we will not be able to reduce the incidence of cognitive decline and dementia until we reform the political and economic systems that contribute to vast inequalities in wealth and limit access to healthy food, clean water and air, education and medical care. We will continue to suffer damage to our brains so long as we continue to despoil our environment and disrupt Earth's climates. So what can we do about it? Are there any solutions? Well, that's the topic of part two of my discussion with Danny George. I also had the opportunity to talk with Peter Whitehouse, Danny's co-author on The Myth of Alzheimer's and American Dementia. I think you'll really find it useful to listen to all four of the MindRamp podcasts with Danny George and Peter Whitehouse and buy their books and read them. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for caring about healthy brains and clear-thinking minds. Learn more about our work and research at www.mindramp.org. Okay, until next time, take care of yourself, take care of your family and your community, and take care of the planet that sustains us all. <laughs>